there's just no downside to inviting everyone to bring their whole person with them. Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to this week's Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas, and we have a very special guest for you today. It's my friend, Brandon Barthole. He is currently the executive chairman at Kahee Distributors, which is a food distributor. He was the CEO of for 16 years and grew tenfold to $8 billion in revenue. Uh, if you want to learn how to do that, tune in. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot more than that, but that is very interesting and impressive. Brandon, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be here. Good to see you. Well, Brandon and I met earlier in uh, 2023 at an event uh, of like-minded business people and uh, really just hit it off. And I just love Brandon, uh, his sense of humor, uh, the way he doesn't take himself too seriously, but also has a very impressive business career. But Brandon, uh, we always try to start these conversations with just a little bit of background. Tell us about your family, where you grew up, what that was like, that sort of thing. Yeah, great. I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Uh, I am the youngest of four kids and uh, luckily married the oldest of five. So the, the oldest and youngest get along pretty well. But uh, youngest of four, my uh, dad was in the oil business. Uh, there's a whole story there that we may or may not touch on, but uh, probably about my ninth grade year, I came home from school one day and there's a padlock on the front door. It had been uh, repossessed and my dad was no longer in the oil business. So I kind of back half of my uh, younger years, I was sort of dealing with, uh, you know, moving from the big house and, and the country club and so forth into just, you know, a more, you know, kind of a normal life. Uh, it formed me, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that as we go through the day, but uh, my dad and mom were Christian scientists, which oh. is a religion that I don't understand, and luckily never, you know, totally got involved in that, but uh, it was a big part of me growing up. Yeah, it's interesting. Now, about what year was this that your dad was having the business struggle? Do you remember? So it would have been about 1970 ish seven yeah, yeah seven. so this wasn't like 1982 bust this sounded maybe a little more company specific or something not necessarily the whole industry going although it's wildly cyclical everybody knows that about all commodity businesses but oil in particular but this was a little more company specific you want to just unpack that story just a little bit that's a big deal well it's a big deal because of the way it impacts you know everybody involved and for me it was just it was a big deal because I was a young kid. I grew up in a household that had money. You know, I was a member at a country club from the time that I could, you know, could even swing a golf club and so forth. And then all of a sudden, literally one day, you know, nothing. And uh, it was a struggle from then on. And and the blessing for me is that it 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 made me go out and understand what it was like to you know start uh, basically from scratch. I had to work from the time I was you know young paper routes and the dishwashers and the, you know, any job that I could get, I ended up working at a grocery store. Most of my high school career, I worked all the way through college and, you know, it just gave me a work ethic that I don't know 
if I would have had otherwise. So I'm not sure what life would have been like, but I know it changed. And uh, it was a very specific company issue, but basically uh, lost in a proxy fight. And my dad went from, you know, working every day, long hours and running a company to unemployed and never really kind of got it back on track. So for the rest of his life, you know, great guy and, and loved him to death, but not, you know, not really uh, a career guy after that. So it was a very interesting, uh, two, almost like two different upbringings. But you know, what's amazing about that, Brandon, is one, one of the questions we like to ask uh, new clients at, at Arcos is, what is your first memory of money? And then be quiet. That can go a lot of different places, but that's what first hit me when you said that, because these stories as kids of what we see our parents go through economically, man, it has a big effect on us forever. Honestly, like the way we look at security. So I'm, you're talking about the work ethic that it instilled, frankly, out of necessity, you know, and then is, is there a, do you, not to get too personal, but do, is there a, maybe a sense of you'd really like to have financial security for yourself? Is that a thing that you didn't want your kids to go through? Or maybe one step deeper, how else do you think that affected you? Well, the way that I've processed it and always talked about it is that people are motivated by different things in life and certainly in business. I am motivated to not fail. Yeah, That is what gets me up in the morning. That's why I do what I do. And at the end of every day and at the end of my career, I look back and go, well, you know, thank God I didn't fail. And because of the experience that I had, had as a younger person, that that's what drove me. That's what my measuring stick was. Other people are driven by greed. Other people are driven by, you know, all kinds of things. Yeah. For me, it was failure. The other thing about this in terms of, you know, the context of today and being a CEO and and leading a group of people and so forth. It was something that I talked with my people so that they knew that one of my triggers uh, in my management style was always going to be a fear of failure. And so they would see certain behavior out of me at certain times, which they couldn't figure out what it was, but I knew it was because I was bumping into something that felt like it might be a failure. So we're going to go a different direction. And, you know, that's when they go, whoa, what, you know, what, what was that all about? But it helps everybody to know, you know, kind of people's backgrounds and, and in my case, the leader's background and, and where are the triggers for that person? Well, I just think it's uh, so important to process those things for yourself and then let other those people know. I, I think there's a lesson in that for everybody. All right. So you grow up, uh, you go to college, you went to school in Colorado, right? You want to tell us about your college years and that sort of thing? Well, first off, very distinguished. Uh, went away my freshman year to play football at a very, very small school. And I found out in, in a very short period of time, even at the smallest possible level, I was too slow. I was too small. And, and frankly, I wasn't very good. So the football career ended quickly. Luckily, I met my wife during that summer after my freshman year. I moved back to Colorado, uh, went to school here. My wife went to a different university, and we got married a year later. So we celebrated this week our 45th year of, wow. of uh, marriage, which has been awesome. But we literally got married as juniors and senior in, in college, which, again, kind of, you know, that's a thing. And, and it created a certain environment for the two of us. But uh, 
I was and always thought I would be a Colorado guy. When I graduated, I went to work for an oil company, Conoco, and uh, I worked for them in a training program for about a year uh, based out of the Denver office. And then they began to move me. And uh, for a period of almost 45 years, I never, never moved back to Denver. So it's, uh, it's good to be home now. We, I'm 65. I, I stepped, as you said, I stepped out of the CEO role and I, my wife and I moved back to Denver for the first time in a long, long time. It's great to be back. Well, so yeah, I just thought you'd probably never leave Colorado and then, yeah, <laughs> our, our best laid plans, right? Yeah. But, uh, at least you finally got back there. So, so now given this background, thank you so much for sharing this story of uh, of your upbringing, because I think it does set the tone. You know, probably not a surprise uh, that you took a job with a big company. Sounds more stable, right? You bet. You, you had Conoco and then DuPont, right? Uh, DuPont bought them the year that I started there. So I had jobs inside of DuPont and Conoco. And yeah, right, it was so a big company. Yeah, but you've got a competitive sense to yourself. The football thing is is uh, obviously uh, kind of tells that story a little bit. But you've got this thing, but you're able to kind of exercise those leadership skills or whatever, maybe inside a big company, which seems maybe safer than the path your dad took initially, right? I mean, is that some of the thing? Was that conscious or subconscious? You think in your early career? I think it was subconscious. I was drawn to the oil company and oil industry because of my dad. Okay. But I think big, big was important. And I, I think I subconsciously felt safer, but I also will tell you that there was an ego element to it, that I was working for a big company that people knew. Okay. And I could, you know, I could take some pride in that. And, and, uh, of course that all wears off pretty quickly, the ego, I mean, but, um, yeah, it, it's, it's all in the mix. And, uh, I got, about 11 years into that career and what I had learned at Conoco and DuPont and in that early part of my career is that I had, I had kind of a drive to be a leader. I became someone that people could put into messy situations and I could fix them, clean them up, start some divisions inside of a big company. And so I was a little bit different than others and that I liked these sort of either broken or startup situations, even inside of a big company. So at 11 years, at 11 years at Conoco, I got recruited by another smaller oil company. And I went over there at 33 years old as the chief operating officer. I was too young to know that I was too young for that job. <laughs> How long did that last? That lasted about a decade. And okay. that, took the family to St. Louis. The company was based there. We thought that we would live there forever, but, uh, that, Is that Clark refining. Is that what that was? That was Clark refining. Okay. At that time, it was the, uh, 12th largest oil company in the United States. It gave me exposure to wall street, which prior to that I had, you know, I had had none. So I understood a little bit more about the debt markets and capital markets. You know, IP did, did an IPO while we were there, so I got to experience that. And uh, and then the division, the marketing side of that company was spun off. Uh, I, with the help of a private equity company, bought that, and and uh, that was where I became a CEO for the first time. And I was 
oh, I guess I was probably about 40 years old when, when all that was happening. And, and then from that point for the next 25 years, lived in Chicago and had, you know, been a CEO of a couple of different situations there, including my last one at Cahey for, as you said, for 16 years. So Cahey, did you pick that one up in Chicago? Were you living in Chicago for most of that? Yeah, I was living in Chicago. I was running a, I, in my oil career, I had gotten into the, into the convenience store. Oh, okay. That, that's the transition. I was trying to figure out the energy to food distribution transition. Yeah. And I began in all of these companies to be something of a, you know, of a multi-unit retail expert and, and the convenience store side of the business and the food business, et cetera. Well, Late in, in that run, and before I went to work for KE, we did a uh, an RFP to find a company that had healthy, organic foods and maybe some interesting foods that would be a little bit different, a little more upscale than what most convenience stores would carry. And we found this little distributor in Chicago by the name of KE, and uh, they became a supplier of ours. That's how I knew the company. And uh, then the company that I was running was sold, 7-Eleven bought that company and, and, uh, I was on the street. I had, you know, I had been displaced as a CEO, didn't want to work for, you know, the big company. Uh, and, uh, a guy tapped me on the shoulder one day on a mission trip and said, you've been in the food business. I'm the banker for a company called Kehi. Have you heard of them? And I laughed and well said, yeah, they were a supplier of mine. And they said, well, they're looking for a CEO that's got some faith background. Would you be interested? And I, I basically said, no, uh, thanks. Know a little bit about the company, not really interested, but you know, thanks for asking. And in God's persistence, a couple of months later, I'm with a totally different guy in a different situation. He brings up the same thing. And I politely said, yeah, not, not really going to be my cup of tea. Thank you. And and then a third guy uh, gets me in front of the recruiter. Uh, the recruiter and I spend about six hours together, and a month later, I was in the seat as the CEO. So God, God had a plan. I didn't see it, but it was the perfect job and the perfect situation for me at that time in my life and in my career. Now, you told me before we started recording, so K-E is K-E capital H-E, right? Uh, so that capital H is significant. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? Well, the, the found, the, the company was founded by a family and, um, the dad that founded it, handed it off to the son and the son ran it and built it for 30 years. Jerry K, he is a, uh, he, he is today a great guy and, and a mentor. Jerry, when he interviewed me the first time said, you know, listen, we're trying to do this faith culture a little bit better than what you know, we've done it to date. So, you know, talk to me about that. And, and also, you know, talk to me about your, you know, your, uh, desire to, to take this company to a different place and, and, you know, from a business perspective. So I get inside the company, I'm running it. And the first thing that happens is I, I, I've never liked the logo of the company. It was old fashioned. It didn't present itself in the market well. And the name Kahi was kind of a confusing one because it, the family pronounces it K and the industry pronounces it K-E and so forth. And so we, we go to rebrand 
we're going to set a new logo, new mark so that it would point into the future. And, and as a part of that, we were talking about our faith-friendly culture and the, the group that did the logo said, we think you should emphasize this faith-friendly through your logo. And so they brought us versions of capital K, little e, and capital H, capital E. And that became our way of sort of winking that uh, this was a faith-friendly company that he is ultimately in power and uh, has authority over the company. And that's been, you know, in place for the last 15 years plus. Well, and it brings up, it's sort of, dem- when I saw it, I wondered if that was the case, but I wasn't sure. I, you know, maybe it was short for two different words. You know, you d- it's not even a popular last name, if you will. Right. Like, I didn't know it was named for, you know, might've been a merger of two, a, a K-E word and an H-E word. And but it sort of lends itself to, uh, uh, to, to having that story told, which I assume was helpful. It is helpful. And, and, you know, when you, when you take the faith, uh, into the workplace and as a supplier into the, into the grocery industry, both natural foods and, and traditional grocery, um, as a buyer and distributor of thousands of different brands, we had exposure into the marketplace that many people thought, well, it would be too risky to have faith at work and to have this conversation about the name of the company and what do you guys mean by faith friendly and I've got hundreds of stories but I would tell you that not once not ever did it hurt us in a biz- from a business perspective I would tell you that absolutely always in every situation it was a positive in every way and so my belief and it, it's been proven out now and living color over and over again is taking your faith with you to work and being bold in your faith is a good thing. And uh, I think you have to do it in the right way. You can't beat people over the head with it. And you've got to be open to all faiths and you've got to be loving of all people in every direction. But having your own faith system and being willing to say that you can bring it with you to work is, I think, has proven to be a really great thing. Uh, I think that is a very important statement because I, I felt the same way for a long time that, you know, don't want to rock the boat if I'm a little too, uh, outward about it. You know, frankly, for me, it came even down to like the holiday card versus the Merry Christmas card kind of thing. Right. Like, I don't want to avoid, uh, you know, uh, uh, and actually, you know, what, what hit me was, you know, if somebody sends me a you know, a Kwanzaa card or a, you know, uh, any kind of card that's not maybe a, 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 a Christmas card, a Hanukkah card. I'm not offended. I'm like, good for them. They have uh, yeah. faith in something or, you know, a commitment or, uh, and I'm like, so why am I worried about it? So I, I just think the more I've been genuine about it, the better it's gone. Uh, and, and then you don't have to think so hard about it. Frankly, just be who you are. I, how, how did you express that about bringing your whole self? I think this could be really helpful. To somebody listening, uh, walking on the treadmill or something right now, who's maybe yeah. worried about that? Maybe I'm back. this is, yeah, this is a journey that that we've been down, and and I really believe I've learned a lot um, in this regard. I would tell you that first off, through the an organization called the CEO Forum, I heard a speaker talk about faith friendly, and it's important that we you know that we say faith friendly is exactly that. It's not faith founded. It's not. You know, you're not a religious organization or whatever, but you 
as a pillar of a culture, you can be faith-friendly, and we are. Now, I was a couple of years down that journey when something very significant happened. I was having lunch with a Jewish rabbi from Chicago. We were talking about him being a speaker at one of our events, and he wanted me to unpack this thing about faith-friendly. And, and, and as I was doing it, he said, he, he said to me, he goes, it's interesting because what you're telling me is that you're experiencing that if people bring their whole person with them to work, then you get more of that person, you get the whole person, you get their whole life, and maybe they're even going to be a more valuable employee. And I, I locked onto those words, and it became a part of our culture and the part of the way that we talked about it, that we encouraged everybody in our company to bring their whole person, including their faith, whatever that faith was, including no faith, including I don't believe in God. All of that is good because it's all of who you are, and we can have that adult civil conversation. I'm not trying to hide the fact that I'm a Christian. They're not trying to hide the fact that they're a, a Jewish person or somewhat of the Muslim faith, or maybe I don't believe. And I've got some great stories about all the different religions, but most notably, I would tell you it's the people with no faith, and they were really open about that, that were most afraid and concerned about getting involved in our culture. And you can imagine what they found is ultimately our culture stood for something and it was meaningful and they got meaning out of it. And for the most part, most of those people have, have, you know, made KE a home because of, you know, a, a culture that stands for something. So there's just no downside to inviting everyone to bring their whole person with them. You know, I've, and I, KE was never public. Is that true? That's true. Okay. But you did work for public companies, but, but I've even heard, you know, the CEO of Intel, for instance, I know is a, a, a believer and, you know, he has that same ethic inside of a public company. So I think, I think that approach where, uh, of, of bringing your whole person, that makes a lot more sense than having this wall up. If, if your faith, no matter what it is, is super important to you. Is that kind of a weird thing to not try to bring to work? I mean, it is with you all the time and pretending like it's not seems weird actually. So, but, but this is not that popular, right? Isn't, don't you think for corporate America is still sort of saying, don't talk about that here? Well, I think there's always been that separation. I believe in some cases, a separation was good. And for historical reasons, maybe it was applied in the wrong way and, and therefore had to be separated. And I would say that it depends on the leader. It depends on the way that it, it's being imprinted onto the company. And I would only speak for myself by saying, you never, ever use this as a weapon. You never use it as a judgment. You never use it as a, you know, it, it's this way or the highway. You have got to be open to every you know, person's belief system. And if you are, and if you're loving in that openness, then just what you were saying, all of a sudden they know that their CEO is of a faith, whether that's the Christianity faith or whether it's Jewish or Muslim or any other faith. I mean, why don't you want to know that about your leader? You know, like where are, where are they from? What do they do? Right. And uh, if the leader is willing to do that and willing to, to just make it then an open part of the culture and not judge and not, you know, beat people over the head with it and so forth. 
I think it opens up the culture. I think it makes it better. And I get asked a lot about all the current social issues. I think those are easier to navigate if you're open about this. And I, you know, I can talk about that, but uh, I think it's easier to navigate the more open you are and the more willing you are to love everything. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like if you try to be overly politically correct, yeah, you're going to step in it. I mean, you know, if you're dealing with those issues, you're like, hey, we asked everybody to bring their whole thing. Here's my take. Yeah. But I'm one guy. Okay. And, uh, you know, can, can companies have a stand on things? Companies don't have opinions. Companies are just full of people, you know? So, I mean, yeah. it is kind of refreshing, actually, to, to, to think about. Now, one of the things, of course, now you run a pretty big organization, right? You get there, sounds like it was, what, $800 million in revenue. You take it to $8 billion. That's a lot of growth, man. And, and so there's some M&A in there, all that kind of stuff. What was it like uh, growing like that? Uh, there had to be a lot of changes happening too. Yeah, a tremendous amount of change. Um, you know, culture is something that I personally take, you know, really seriously. And I think that all the people that worked for me over the years would tell you that if I was good at anything, I was good at worrying about the culture and trying to nurture it and take care of it and so forth. And, you know, hopefully I was good at a few other things, but culture was really my baby. Um, when, when we would make an acquisition, and I go back to the very first one we made where we bought a company that was operating on kind of on both coasts and they heard that we were this faith friendly thing. Well, you can imagine there were people that were very worried and concerned about that. And there were people that were, you know, you're not going to bring any of that to me. And what, what, what do you do with all that? And what I would tell you again is what I found from a cultural standpoint is it gave us a pillar that we could, we could rally around. And certainly there were people at the acquired company that never got on board with our culture in general, faith friendly or anything else. But, but, you know, for the most part, it made it better. And let me give you an example. We, we were a company that even back in those early days had always served in some way. And that's been developed into something today that's really exciting. But even in that day and a, uh, a, a 14 year old daughter of one of my employees, had been to a packing event where she had packed food that was going to go out into the community. And, and we made this acquisition. We were trying to think about how we were going to bring our culture together. We had this faith-friendly culture and serving. And she said, you guys should do a packing. Event. After we closed the acquisition, we took the packing event on the road, every warehouse, every office, every facility, all the way around the country. And a year later, we packed our one millionth meal that we gave away. And it, it glued the two companies together. It glued the culture together. It brought people together. And for the acquired company, they saw that we were doing something good. You get done packing the food and then you stop and pray over it. Well, some people are creeped out by that, you know, but most of the people kind of go, that was pretty cool. You know, that, that, that was a good thing. And I'm, I'm glad to be at this company. So it's one example, but the long story short is we, we've, We've had a tremendous amount of change in our company and culture. We've managed to acquire and, and make some big acquisitions and, and bring that together. And uh, today, I would just tell you that we have a culture that, that really matters. It, it's, it's substantial in what it means to our employees. And I, and I think our employees, in every nook and cranny of the company, would defend it as a great 
you know, great culture that they're proud to be a part of. Well, I remember uh, going to a seminar. I love that story because I remember going to a seminar uh, for C12 put on. It was a marketing woman and her specialty within marketing was to help companies tell their sort of philanthropic giving story. And she was stunned by, she said, she said, the clients who listen to me the most about telling the giving story are the least generous because <laughs> they're just trying to market, you know, like, hey, I'll, I'll get onto anything and it'll help me. Okay. If, if you're generous, then, then maybe that'll help with our image. Yep. She goes, and the companies that were the most generous were like the quietest about it, you know? And she goes, and I get it. Like biblical, don't let your right hand or your right. left hand do it, all this kind of stuff. But, but she's like, no, but let your light shine. It doesn't have to be egotistical. But, but I think what you're, I love that because it's like, that actually those things are important to show future employees and uh, customers and that kind of thing, that who you really are, not, not as a manipulative thing, but I mean, people need to know that's happening. What do you think about that in terms of telling that story? Well, I think you're exactly right. There's a tension that we all feel about not bragging about it or telling the story and it's the right hand, left hand. I mean, it, it's real and it's a tension. And I would tell you for a number of years at Kehi, I was reluctant to want to tell the story too broadly outside of our own employees. Right. Over the over the course of time, it became clear to me that everybody that we dealt with wanted to know, and and we didn't beat the drum, and you know we don't. Well, you're not pounding your chest; it's no. just just, just, no. just telling the truth, though. Yeah, yep. And we have retailers that that I know some of the biggest companies in the United States and food that I know do business with us because of our culture. Uh, we have a lot of suppliers that love what we do. And frankly, our suppliers, because a lot of them are smaller, yeah. love the fact that they're doing business with a company that has a culture that does so much good. And so they feel a part of that. And we've had a lot of our vendors ask us if they can go on our serving trips with us because they don't have the means themselves to be able to put it together. But we send employees, we've, we've had over 2,000 of our employees uh, go on multi-day serving trips where they take vacation time and the company through its foundation provides the connection and, and the, you know, the financial support to do it. But we're talking about all over the world. We support you know, organizations as far away as Nepal and you know, right here in the United States. And what happens is when you can get one of your employees to experience a serving trip like that, they begin to begin the, to understand that this is why the company does what it does. So now, you know, through through putting hard work and sweat and effort, going on a trip and serving others that are less fortunate than we are, they go, oh, this is why KE Cares exists. This is why we talk so much about, you know, having a faith-friendly organization. And then they come back from those trips, get lit up, and they begin to live differently, serve in their local communities, treat their employees differently. And I mean, the whole thing just changes. And uh, so it's one of the, it's kind of like a, you know, a circle and uh, it just feeds itself. It's, we've, we've really uh, come to understand what it means to serve. Well, if you've got 2000 people who've taken those trips, that must be one of the cornerstones of that foundation. Is that fair to say? It is. From a mission standpoint, what are 
this is a question we actually get a lot. Uh, and, uh, and I think this is really helpful because K is pretty darn big company now. So the processes have to be, you know what I mean? You've got to have, yeah. uh, this is not eight people. This is 7,000 people or plus. So what does that look like? Can you share with us a little bit about maybe what the pillars are of the, of the corporate foundation? You know what I mean? Yep. You bet. So KE Cares is actually a foundation. Right? Yeah. It's funded from, you know, 10% of our net income and, and, uh, there's a lot of elements to it. But what I would say is there's dollars available inside of KE Cares to help, uh, in, from a benevolent standpoint, our, our own. Yeah. And, and there, there's always great need. That's a hot topic. We, we, we get that one a lot. Okay. So that's in there. Yeah. And that, and there's some of the most unbelievable stories and situations there just makes me cry to even, mm-hmm. you know, try to tell those stories. Yeah. The bigger part and by far the most dollars serving trips where okay. we support what we call care partners all over the world. And what we're looking to do in that regard is we're looking to help human beings that are in a situation that is less fortunate than us. We don't use that for the planet. We don't use it for animals. We don't use, you know, we don't just write checks, but we support organizations around the globe that are, that are helping people that are less fortunate. So an example, we've been serving with organizations along, along the West and South side of the city of Chicago in very poor areas for years. And we come alongside those organizations that are trying to lift young people out of poverty and out of situations with gangs and so forth. So we've been doing a lot of that. We, we got into the world of sex trafficking and the, and the recovery thereof. And one organization leads you to another. And that's how we got to Nepal. Nepal is notorious for, uh, you know, a brothel industry that's absolutely atrocious. It's a trip that only females can take because of the, how bad the situations are. And frankly, even though I hate to say this, how young the girls are, the victims. And so we send our, our, uh, female, uh, employees over to Nepal. We, we've sent, you know, people to Guatemala, to Haiti, to Mexico and, and, you know, all points in between. And it becomes the pillar where the company has these connections. We're supporting these partners, but our dollars are used primarily for our people to go down and serve. Yeah. So we're not just writing a check so that their general fund has, you know, some money. We do some of that, but we're much more interested in sending our people to do the work alongside them and help them. And uh, our, it's phenomenal for those organizations. Our people get so much out of it. I can only uh, just kind of summarize it by saying it's life-changing. And for our company, what it does is it, it glues the culture. Again. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Yeah. And so, they get bond on that. They learn what the company's about. I mean, financial nerd here, how, or do, how do employees, do you allow employees to participate somehow in giving to the foundation? Yeah. So the first thing I should say is that the foundation is run by volunteers that are all from the employee oh, race wow. is not managed. Wow. So the way that the dollars are directed, the organizations that we support, the trips that we take. And all the approval of everything all comes from a committee of employees that are, you know, from the ranks of the organization. So that's the first thing. I would also tell you that 
anybody outside of the company can contribute cares and we get we get contributions from customers and suppliers and and people in the industry and more and more of our employees have you know asked and have in fact donated to cares by far the vast vast majority of the money is coming from profit you know, the company and its net income yeah yeah but um the the one other thing that i would say that i think is an important element of this is it's we view the serving uh journey as just that a journey and we believe that people have to take small steps you don't you don't want to necessarily yank somebody out of their their normal life in you know in the suburbs or whatever city and send them to nepal yeah. so we we typically ask for people to go on a trip that we have designed and kind of curated in just over the border uh, down in Mexico. It's actually set up on the on the U.S. side in Laredo with a partner that we've worked with for years. And people go down there and they sort of very gently begin to understand what it's like to be in this environment and serve and so forth. And if they get lit up in that and they come back and say, I want to do something more, then then they might get a Haiti or a Honduras or Guatemala and and for our ladies, uh, certainly a Nepal uh, trip is something that is possible, but it is traumatic. And so you you've also got to be careful around you know the curation of these these trips. And the last thing that I want to say is the uh, the other part of the KE Cares organization is an organization is is the part that deals with developing management leadership our people. And in that leadership development, we also are very interested in having our care partners come back through the U.S. and spend time with us, both in our operations and in the development process so that we're feeding them because they don't have the kinds of you know resources it would take to, to self-develop or develop leadership or what have you. So we, in turn, feed them. The nonprofit leadership, yes, of the people that are helping facilitate the trips, yes, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that's where the circle really gets closed. Is wow. you, bring, you bring them in and and feed them from a development standpoint. And oh, by the way, and I I say this sort of tongue in cheek and 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 it's a little bit selfish, but isn't it great to have a pastor who serves? Uh, you know, thousands of people down on the border of Mexico mm-hmm. that is Hispanic and speaks that language in our warehouse. Wow! Out on the dock, praying for people. Right. And so first off, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to hide it. I That's love right. that, and it's a competitive advantage to have that guy there. But while he's there, and while he's in the U.S. and so forth, we're also trying to spend time with him, worry about his health, worry about his soul. And help him from a leadership development standpoint. So we're we're trying to pour back into him, so that you know he can go out and do more of what he does so well. That's awesome. So I think this seems to be a. Uh, I mean, it's pretty obvious. This is a passion point for you, and I know uh, that you're very involved with the CEO Forum. You want to just tell a, a minute or two about what is the mission of the CEO Forum. Yeah, the, the mission of the forum is essentially to educate and support and encourage C-suite leaders to take their faith with them to work. And so, you know, we believe that they're that the largest ministry, you know, in in the world is in the marketplace. And, you know, 
marketplace leaders uh, can change the world. And so the forum is designed to uh, give them the tools, give them the encouragement, give them the support network to have the, you know, the, the courage to take their faith into, into the world. Great organization. I've met just so many, so many great people. And frankly, it emboldened me, educated me, and allowed me to do a lot of what I've done today. Well, I think to me, that's just, when, when you tell the story, you're so passionate about telling the story of, of what happened. I mean, that's at a really, I mean, it would be a very interesting business case, just a Harvard business uh, case <laughs> of how do you grow an $800 million uh, company to $8 billion. That That's interesting enough. Layer on the culture piece, uh, the faith-friendly piece. And th that's exactly what this uh, podcast is intended to do, is give different examples of how people use their platform. And so I think you've had this very unique walk to, on how to use that platform in a, in a really a God-honoring way for, for generosity, really in a large way to the employees to have them flourish, is what it sounds like to me, a lot through the culture of the business where they work all day, but then also on these uh, mission trips. Now, Brandon, you know, we always try to close with just one sort of practical tip. There's somebody, heck, maybe they've got an $8 million business or an $800,000 uh, revenue business. And they're like, gosh, I don't know, maybe it's 80 million or maybe they're at 800 million, whatever it is. But they're like, how do I start making a turn in this way? What do I do tomorrow uh, to take one step in the right direction? What, what wisdom might you share with them? Is going to seem so simple, but one of the most profound things that you can do is pray with and for your people. When you as a leader show that kind of vulnerability, open up your heart and pray, both on a one-on-one -on -one basis and then, you know, in larger groups, your people see a side of you that they would never otherwise see. And it brings the Holy Spirit into that situation and into your place. And it is, it is profound. So it's not a big thing, but I've had a lot of people tell me that one of the scariest things that they think about is, you know, gee, could I, could I actually pray at work? Well, when you've got an employee, when you're the CEO or, or C-suite leader or, a, you know, leader of any kind, and you've got an employee that's having a personal problem and, and you very quietly and very privately, never public, but just in that moment when it's the right opportunity to say, hey, can I pray for you? Here's what they're thinking. They're thinking, yeah, sure, that'd be great. You know, see you later. No, no. Can I pray right now for you? <laughs> and that, that's a game changer for them. But it's also a game changer for you as a leader because you begin to expose something that most people, you know, never see from their leader. I love that. It shows, frankly, empathy. Uh, a different side, but also enlists the God of the universe into the situation who he's got all the answers and I always say I've got none. Uh, so I love that as a practical tip. And I know I didn't do that in the early part of my career, pray at work. I was scared to do it. And when I started doing it, it did completely change uh, my life and uh, the culture of the business I was leading. So I, I couldn't agree with that more. And I do not think that's a small one. I think that's a very big and wonderful idea. So Brandon, Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us and your wisdom with us. And, uh, uh, you know, I just want to say thank you one more time to you. Yeah, Jeff, thank you. God bless you. Uh, likewise, and thanks, everybody, for joining us on this week's Generous Business Owner Podcast. 
Uh, please share it with your friends, leave us ratings and reviews, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.